On October 5, 1999, in the now-defunct Flint Performing Arts Center in Cupertino, California, Apple was about to change the game. Word on the street was that Steve Jobs was going to introduce the new iMac, Apple's desktop computer that would come with all sorts of features, including a slot to load a CD, a cooling system that doesn't need to use a fan, and a rumored software that could allow any user to make movies. That Wednesday, the Flint Performing Arts Center was packed with tech reporters, programmers, coders, and Apple fans. It has become a ritual, right before Steve Jobs would enter, that the lights would dim, followed by the soft projection of the white Apple logo set across a dark screen. Everyone would be excited, some even clapping loudly in anticipation before Steve walks up on stage. Immediately, the entire room began clapping and whistling away. It took a full 30 seconds before Steve could even say, thank you. So, this is what we're up to today. Uh... Last year, Steve introduced to the world Apple's turnaround story and the first iMac within minutes of entering. This year, everyone was expecting the same. With a smile, he throws in a quick joke and pauses briefly as he soaks up the atmosphere in the room. We got a great day today. Steve walks from left to right, again, pausing like he normally does, before doing something very unusual. On the screen, he projected an older Asian man, smiling so widely that the wrinkles were smiling on his face. In his hands was a small, portable headset connected to a small radio-like device. Most people knew what that was, the Sony Walkman, a portable music cassette player that took the world by storm when it was released. Steve looked up at the screen, of which his tone and face contrasted the Asian man's joyous expression. Akio Morita at Sony. He passed away this Sunday at the age of 78. While he was leading Sony, they invented the whole consumer electronics marketplace. Steve continued, sharing the different innovations that Sony created before concluding, I hope that some of the things that we're doing today would make him smile. Amongst those closer to Steve, they wouldn't find this strange. In fact, it was known that he had a love for Sony that bordered on obsession and a reverence for Akio Morita that would mirror the Apple fans in front of him. But Steve was right to be obsessed. One year later, Sony would release the PlayStation 2 that sold close to 160 million consoles, more than Nintendo when they released the DS and the Switch years later. Even today, it is still the number one best-selling gaming console worldwide. Um, One of the great inspirations to me and a lot of the folks at Apple was Akio Morita at Sony. He passed away this Sunday at the age of 78. We've certainly been very inspired by it, and I hope that some of the things that we're going to be doing today would make him smile. This is the unbelievable story of Sony, the empire that shaped the world of consumer electronics.
It is commonly agreed that Sony's highest point was in the 2000s, right before the dot-com crash. At that time, Sony had twice the market cap of Apple and had dominance in many different consumer electronic verticals, from television, portable audio, and entertainment. The man most famously credited for its rise is Akio Morita, the CEO of Sony, who Steve Jobs idolized to a great degree. To the few who were close to both, they would understand why. Both Akio Morita and Steve Jobs had similar personalities. Both were known to be somewhat arrogant and critical, and both had the same job. They were the business side of their technology company who pursued many similar principles. In fact, many believe that what Steve Jobs had were very much inspired by Akio Morita, such as his distrust for market research. The two companies also have similar co-founders who seemed lesser known but were the driving force behind the technology of the companies. For Apple, it was Steve Wozniak, and for Sony, it was Masaru Ibuka. For Sony's case, Masaru Ibuka actually founded Sony in 1946 and scaled it to a 20-man team before Akio Morita joined. Fast forward to today, Sony is a massive behemoth whose business will surprise you. When you think of Sony, what products come to mind? Probably the PlayStation, headphones, maybe the Walkman. While these products seem popular, cumulatively, these business segments don't even make up 50% of Sony's revenues. In fact, Sony is diversified across six different verticals, the largest being its games and network services at 27%, followed by its electronics product and solutions at 23%. Surprisingly, what comes third is its insurance business. Yes, insurance, called Sony Life at 15% of total revenue. The next biggest are its movies and music division at 12 to 11% each. And its last segment is the imaging and sensing solutions, also known as ISS, this division is fast becoming an attractive moneymaker that supplies phone cameras to Apple and a whole range of phone producers. Sony effectively is a conglomerate, and while many conglomerates tend to have business units that contribute little to the overall revenue, in Sony, the smallest unit, ISS, still contributes at least 11%. But Sony's product diversification is only one part of the story. It is also a truly global company. One would think that Sony, being a Japanese company, would have predominant revenue streams from Japan. And yet, it only accounts for 28% because many consumer electronic reviews and media come from America. The US also contributes 28% as well. The remaining 45% is diversified regionally in the EU at 20%, APAC at 12%, China at 8%, and all other markets at 6%. By staying diversified, Sony's impact is on a global level that led one of the greatest contributions to the perception of Japanese products, that made-in-Japan goods are of excellent quality. This might seem intuitive to the modern generation whereby Japanese products are viewed as thoughtfully crafted, but to the older generation, they had once believed that Japanese products were actually of lower quality. For us to understand why and how Sony even ended up being so diversified, it's important to go back in time 
right when World War II was ending in Japan, and when Masaru Ibuka was an engineer. It was 1944, and far from the city centers in the rugged hills of the Miura Peninsula, near the mouth of Tokyo Bay, a group of Japanese was hard at work. The team was a medley of engineers coming from the navy and signals. It also included physicists, graduates, and hardware experts. Ibuka, aged 36, who at that time was known as a brilliant electrical engineer with complex knowledge over radio systems, was tasked to lead the entire team. Their goal: to make the world's first heat-seeking missile. The entire team was excited. After all, they had heard that Japan was winning the war. Everyone except Masaru Ibuka. You see, the years prior to the war, Japan had ensured all radios couldn't pick up waves beyond their borders. This allowed the Japanese military to exercise a monopoly over communication, and to convince the local populace that Japan was winning the war. That seemed true until America entered the war. Now, Japan is losing, and some would argue it's already lost. While the radio systems were blasting away propaganda, Masaru Ibuka was tapping into foreign radio waves by retrofitting Japanese radios with a makeshift antenna. He knew Japan wasn't dominating the war. In fact, if the foreign broadcasts were right, the Allied forces might just land on Japan's soil in less than a year. To Masaru Ibuka. This small team was a hopelessly desperate attempt for Japan to turn the tide. Nonetheless, he toiled tirelessly to build a heat-seeking missile. Of course, to no avail. Not because Ibuka wasn't smart. It was because the technology would only be available at a military level, eleven years into the future. Sir, Ibuka might have saluted as a young naval officer walked by. The officer returned the gesture, but something felt different. Most Imperial Navy officers were uptight and professional, but this one had the eyes of a rebel. It was Akio Morita, thirteen years his junior, and just like Ibuka, he knew a secret. In 1898, the first cars that came into Japan were imported from France. But very quickly, the axis of technology shifted to the United States. In 1924, Ford started operations in Japan, and one year later, so did General Motors. Morita's family had enjoyed learning about Western technology from automobiles to the electric phonograph. The young Akio Morita was no different, and would become engrossed in taking them apart. Over time. Morita became aware of the advancement coming from the United States, and when Japan announced their victory over Pearl Harbor, Morita almost fell off the bed. He couldn't believe that Japan was about to go against a nation which he believed was technologically superior to the Japanese. While the whole of Japan was confident, Morita was not. If Japan was neither larger in population nor technologically more advanced. He was convinced that Japan was going to lose the war. 
1944, both men bonded instantly, likely drawn by their contrarian beliefs about Japan's victory, and on 6th August of 1945, they were proven right. The first atomic bomb landed in Hiroshima, then the second three days later in Nagasaki. On August 15th, the Japanese emperor announced for all Japan to endure the unendurable and suffer what is not sufferable. Japan had surrendered. It was an overwhelming defeat with 2.5 to 3 million Japanese dead, while in contrast, less than 500,000 Americans had died. As quickly as the team was assembled, it was disassembled, and Ibuka and Morita would part ways. While Morita headed back home to Nagoya, Ibuka would instead head over to Tokyo at age 37 to make a huge bet. You see, the Allied forces had ravaged Japan with not just the atomic bombs, but the firebombs across major cities. These incendiaries would wipe out the majority of housing that were made from wood, and literally leave Japan's landscape charred and bare. To rebuild everything for the new age, engineers and technologists would be the backbone, and Marita could carve out a future there. It was also believed that as Japan would demilitarize, a lot of resources that were fully dedicated to the military were now released, which might lead to a surplus of electricity and intelligent labor that escaped conscription. The only question he had to answer was, what product? There you go. I think it should work now. Ibuka was tweaking a radio set for his client. Thank you. This is so helpful. Here, please take my rice. The client had scooped a bit of rice into a bag. In 1945, rice was a precious commodity where there were serious food shortages. Ibuka held onto the bag and left the apartment. Times were not going well for Ibuka. In September 1945, Ibuka purchased a narrow room on the third floor of the Shirokiya department store in Nihonbashi. The room became a workshop for whatever labor he could find. The building was one of the rare few that survived the firebombing, but it was barely hanging on. It had cracks all over the concrete walls, no windows, and charred marks everywhere. They had to take one month to reinforce the place with silicon steel boards before Ibuka felt confident enough to announce that they had established a new company, the Tokyo Telecommunications Research Institute. The company's purpose? to establish a stable workplace for engineers to work to their heart's content in full consciousness and joy in their technology. It was also why, for a long time, his team of seven engineers were wondering what to do. Ibuka thought that by assembling people who believed they were engineers, the company would somehow come up with an excellent product. It seemed fair, but it would require time which Ibuka didn't have because he was paying the engineer's wages with his own money. But as luck would have it, Ibuka's familiarity with the radio came in handy as the team realized that there seemed to be a demand for news around the world, not just from the American occupying forces, 
but from the Japanese who realize that news in Japan isn't what it seems. So the Tokyo Telecommunications Research Institute became a small radio adapter and servicing business. There was only one huge problem no one could pay Ibuka anything. So rice became the de facto payment. Oh God, I'm going to be bankrupt soon. Ibuka was ruminating as he headed back to the office. We need a product. Ibuka addressed his team. One that people will be willing to pay. We can't keep having buckets of rice all around us. His team knew Ibuka was right. But what could they do? Ideas, anyone? Ibuka was looking at his buckets of rice, annoyed. I think we can do something with electricity. I mean, we've a lot of it. Ibuka was making a connection. I agree. What's cheap around here is electricity. Ibuka gestured for someone to pass him a bucket of rice. What if we affix a base plate on the back of the bucket? What do you mean, Ibuka? Well, if we run electricity through a base plate, we'll generate heat. Lots of it. I think we might be able to create a type of rice cooker with these buckets. The team believed that water could close the electrical loop needed to generate heat. As the rice cooks, the water dries up and the electrical circuit breaks, leaving only perfectly done rice as long as enough water was added. It was a theoretical masterpiece. And because eating tasty rice is quite a privilege, if they could successfully create a functional rice cooker, they might have just struck gold. So the team began doing what they always did whenever they needed metal. They headed to the rubbish bins and streets to pick up any litter with a strand of metal in it. They would melt them in iron pans to reconstruct the wiring and plate needed for the rice cooker. Melted trash metal was a function of necessity in Japan. By the end of the war, most buildings were even stripped of metal to produce weaponry. What was left would only be in the form of trash. The metal harvested is often brittle and of low quality, which was why the Japanese products earned a reputation for being poor of quality. But in 1945, the Tokyo Telecommunications Research Institute wasn't stressing out about finding the highest quality metal. There weren't even enough low quality ones. Through persistent rummaging, they managed to clobber up enough to create their first product, a rice cooker, which failed dismally. The base plate heated up too fast, and somehow the electrical circuit would not cut off at the right time. But the theory felt sound, so they made a bread cooker which performed just as badly. While the closed loop idea was a failure, Ibuka thought that doubling down on the idea of heating could be a brilliant strategy, since electricity was cheap and winter was coming. So they invented their third product, the electrically heated cushion. The cushion had a thin nichrome wire grid inserted between two sheets of reinforced paper inside leather, then inside the cushion. Producing it utilizes a helpful resource that thankfully his team had available their wives. The women would produce the cushion and stitch the heating equipment into the cloth. As his team furiously produced the cushions, Ibuka registered a new company named Ginza Heating Company to sell the product. 
using another company name just in case the cushions caught on fire, revealed the faith he had in their third product. But nonetheless, on Winter's Day, they released the cushions to the public. Much to everyone's surprise, it had a massive pickup, and the clients who bought it could pay with real yen. But one year later, the cushions began catching fire as the wires splintered over time. It was an inevitable byproduct of producing wires with melted-down trash. Left with little choice, the team continued doubling down on radio servicing, hoping that a miracle might happen quickly. And something actually did. Ibuka's father-in-law, Maeda, had a friend in Japan's largest newspaper company, the Asahi Shimbun. By sheer luck and connection, the friend wrote a column that promoted Ibuka's radio service. The article surmised that the future is in upgraded radios as more radio companies join the broadcasting industry. It also said that since upgrading is the future, then you should upgrade with a man who has advanced knowledge in it, Ibuka. Instantly, demand for the radio service amongst people who could actually pay rose. And for a second, Ibuka could breathe. Because this would only be a temporary measure, Unless he could hire a genius, they would eventually fail. On October 6, 1945, the Asahi Shimbum article with Ibuka's radio service was distributed nationwide. Some would follow the coastal distribution process, others by train and truck which would take the article into a U-shaped loop across the west of Tokyo before landing in Nagoya. From Nagoya's central distribution center, it would then be redistributed to smaller cities, eventually reaching a sake and miso house in Japan. This was no ordinary sake brewery. It had nearly 400 years of history that spread across 15 generations and was owned by the Morita family. Sitting on the dining table, Akio Morita picked up the newspaper, which back then was just a single sheet article, and read about the rise of the radio before noticing the name. Masaru Ibuka, that's great news! Akio Morita had missed his senior and immediately wrote a letter with the intent to help him in his new business and to support his company in any way he could. Ibuka wrote back, Come visit us, Morita. I'd love for you to see our company, but there's something I must confess. We're in a tight spot and we're looking for funding. By a stroke of luck, Akio Morita had read the news article that featured his friend and knew exactly where to find him. But even better, his physics teacher had invited him just days earlier to become a paid physics professor in Tokyo. He now had both the money and reason to head off into Tokyo and find his fortune with Masaru Ibuka. But their reunification would not mean the birth of Sony, at least not yet, as Ibuka's nightmare would turn into a reality. The radio servicing business was not enough for them to grow. Both Marita and Ibuka would have to figure out how to find money and the right product to sell in a city where half the buildings are destroyed. From 1UP Media, this is Empires, episode 1 of a four-part series, Masaru Ibuka, The Engineer. Next in Empires, 
We'll learn more about Akio Morita's pivotal contribution that saved the company and how the name Sony came to be. Follow us so you won't miss out on episode 2 of our four-part series, Akio Morita, The Businessman. Empires is a one-up media original, produced and edited by Guang Jin, audio experienced by Ethan Sam, and narrated by Peter Ung. A quick word on our reenactments and dramatizations, while we can't know exactly what they say, think, or feel at the moment, it is all based on research. Thank you for listening.